Welcome to the Dylan Experience. Today is episode 59. I've got a very special guest, but before we get to that guest, make sure you like, like, subscribe, follow, whatever you got to do to follow the platform. My next guest is the host of a very special podcast that I've been on, uh, Ordinary People with Extraordinary Stories. He is a local to the country of England, husband, a father, son, a soldier, and an all-around good bloke. I'm happy to have Tim Heal on the podcast today. Tim, how are you? Thanks for having me, Dylan. I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. So we did we did our podcast a couple of weeks ago, and you know yeah. we 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 both were like we we need to continue this conversation because you got to hear my story, I didn't get to hear your story. So I'm kind of excited for this because there's so much I don't know about you, um, mm-hmm. and yet we've been able to have great conversation. I love learning more about people. So why don't you start with your story? You know, tell me tell me how how Tim got to be Tim today. Well, oh, start right back, right back at the beginning. Um, on the, it must've been the 5th of April, 1958. Um, I popped out into the world. First, first thing that happened to me, I was hung upside down by my feet and had my ass slapped. this is a tad unfair i've only just got here anyway it's it's kind of it's kind of been a bit of a struggle ever since then really um i grew up in a in a pretty rough town uh in a place called hatfield in hertfordshire which is just to the north of london it was an overspill from from the the days of the war where lots and lots of um people were been um, moved out of London into the suburbs because they're trying to rebuild London and, and all the devastation from the Blitz and one thing or another. So that's where my parents came out of. Um, my mother was born in, in Harringay in North London and my old man came from Hackney. So uh, almost in the sound of Bow Bells, but yeah, I, was, I was born just to the back of a place called De Havilland's. Havilland's was a factory that used to build the Comet aircraft. And uh, we lived in, it, it wasn't even a, it was, it was too small to be called a hamlet, but it was two cottages and a farm. So that's where I was born. And, um, and then we moved into uh, a place called Wellham Green, which is just outside Hatfield and spent a couple of years there before we actually moved into Hatfield itself. And uh, it was a pretty sort of, rough area i was taught how to fight before i could actually walk so that's the sort of the area it was so it's a bit rough and ready the schools i went to um yeah again you needed to be uh, about your wits and uh, be able to handle yourself and uh, one thing or another and, and that's another little story there was a bully in our in our class and um he hadn't picked on me yet and when he did um, I went to the old man for some advice. Probably not the best thing to do, but he said, well, son, best thing you can do is, is thump the bully as hard as you can, because if you don't, he's going to give you a good hiding. So next day, he starts on me. All anybody saw was me give him a thump, him go flying back into the school pond, and I get dragged off by the ear to the headmaster's office for six of the best. Well, I felt quite a bit of injustice in this. 
the only out, the only reasonable outcome was that the bully didn't pick on me ever again. He 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 could be a wide berth after that, but um, it did it did put the knockers on my education a bit. And a few years ago, it was it, I was diagnosed as having um, dyslexia, so that didn't help my schooling. Um, when I got up in the secondary school, um, we tended to up the wag more than we went into school. So we used to go in in the morning, tick off on the register and clear off. Again, that didn't do me any favours whatsoever. My life changed at the age of about 11. Up until about 11, I was going to be a farmer, same as my granddad uh, and my uncle. We used to go down on the farm. It was a pig farm uh, and I wanted to be a pigman. In school, we took what we call the 11 plus. And this determines whether you go to a grammar school and get a proper education, or you go to a, a rather large comprehensive school that's as rough as you like. And uh, <laughs> so I failed the 11 plus fairly miserably and ended up in a big comprehensive school. Wasn't too bad. I mean, there was a few classes that we did go into. I mean, I was quite into my sport and I loved playing rugby. Uh, and we were able to play rugby at the school. And uh, yeah, I managed to scrape through. And then the first time I was, I was about 14 and three quarters. Uh, it was the first time you could apply to go and join the army. So after I couldn't get into, into the agricultural school, I was going to join the army. So I was down there by myself, got really confused with this form that you had to fill out. And uh, this recruiting sergeant, he says to me, you know, one of the only recruiting sergeants I ever came across that never lied. <laughs> he said, son, if you, if you can't read and write proper, you can't join the army. So you want to get a grip of yourself and, and get yourself a bit of an education so you can read and write and then come back. Well, that weekend, I, I was devastated. I took a long card hold look at, me, look at myself and I, I thought, well, I'm going to do something about this. Else I'm, <laughs> I'm going to end up in prison like some of these other tow rags that got before me. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> So that 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 Monday, um, I, I turned over a new leaf. I didn't up the rag, up the wag like the rest of the lads. I said, no, I've got to do something. I've got to pick myself up. I need a bit. I need to be able to read and write. So the funny part about it, I spent that week. I went to every class that I'd never been to, and all the teachers thought I was a new student coming from somewhere else. <laughs> So I worked, I worked my socks off for about six months um, and then went back to the recruiting office, you know, about 15 and a half. And a mate of mine came with me. That we're going to join the army together. And um, we sat there and the, the recruiting sergeant recognised me. He says, how are you doing? I said, well, I'm going to do a little bit better than the last time. He said, well, all right, here's, here's the test, lads. I'll... Uh, I'll be back in shortly. <laughs> so we sat there. We mate gave us half the answers, and I managed to secure a place in the as a junior soldier in the Royal Anglia Regiment, and never looked back. So on the fifth of August, nineteen seventy-four, I turns up at the depot of the Queen's Division as a junior soldier in the Royal Anglia Regiment, and um, yeah, from there on, life started to get a little bit better for me. But um, it was it was it was a long hard struggle, and, and so people say when, when they went through training, it was tough. 
they know nothing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If 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 you stepped out of line, you you got a two choice. Do you want to go on OC's orders or do you want to have my <laughs> my my punishment? Uh, all over your punishment, Sergeant. Took you around the back and bump. You got a thump. And that was it. Job done. <laughs> Over with. And and he came away. I mean, with half a decent wage at the end of the <laughs> training period. So I, I have a, I have a question. When it when it comes to like that that moment in your life where, you know, you failed that test and and this this recruiter told you, you know, you're not you're not going to join the army with with this kind of score you know, clearly like a moment like that is really uh, transformational because it can, it can be that moment where you either step down and say, you know what, I got nothing left to live for, but clearly like so much of your own mindset throughout your childhood, I imagine kind of emphasize that were you kind of thinking this was the only thing that was, that I was good for, you know, at the time, like what, what was your, what was your decision-making of, you know, those few days after, what kind of pushed you to step into something that you absolutely hate, right? Going to school, um, you know, now you know that there's this dyslexia, you know, yeah. compartment in there. Um, and so it's not something that was that was native to you, but you still did it. So what what kind of pushed you in that moment to, to make that choice? Well, I'm one of these people that my glass is always half full. So, uh, uh, and, and and I look at a problem and I, and I and I look for a solution. And I'd already failed getting into agricultural school, so I failed the eleven plus. So that that scrapped me from going to a grammar school to get a decent education. The comprehension system is is like it's all right, but they they stream you, and I was right in the bottom stream. I mean because I came through the, the junior school as as, as struggling, um, it got even worse because, you know, I mean, I, I mugged school off most of the time. I could I could barely read and write at the time. And where I went to take the, the test to go and to, it was a, it was an agricultural school, but it was a boarding school. So you, 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 you was a boarder, you lived in, you spent your days doing your academic studies and you spent a, a, a lot of time doing um, uh, farming studies. So it, it would be looking at crop rotations, looking at animal husbandry, that sort of thing that this college set you up for to, to, to go on to um, being a professional farmer. So I failed the test to get into there. And, and I thought, well, yeah, I'm in the army, it'll take me. <laughs> at the time I mean I mean most people you had a choice whether you, you went in the army or you went to jail from where, around where I was yeah um so uh, and uh, when the recruiter said yeah, I mean unless I can do better on the test I can't can't join the army and I thought well I don't want to go to prison because I've seen so many herbs that come out of prison and I don't want to go down that road so being R4 I thought well do something about it it's, it's like worrying. I've, I've never been a worrier. There's no point in worrying because if you can't do anything about something, it's pointless worrying about it. If you can do something about it, then do something about it. Don't worry about it. And I've, and I've always kind of had that 
that sort of philosophy, just get on and get the job done. So, yeah, looking at looking at myself and and and, and saying I, I need to do something else, I'm not going to make it. Just you, was spur me on. Do you think that that mindset was taught to you, or was that something that like was kind of intrinsically you? Like, was it kind of a product of your environment? Was it someone taught you that way? Like, what do you think? How do you think you gain this? This because that's somewhat rare nowadays. I think where mm. worry is more rife. It's more. Uh, yeah, it's I mean, more. People. It's more readily available, obviously, um, and and not everybody can look at that with that perspective and say, I can't do anything about this, let it go, move on. Like, it, it's not that simple for some people. Where do you think you kind of gain that, that ability? I don't know. It's, it's, when I was growing up, I mean, as, as a kid, I was never indoors, never at home. My mother never knew where I was. I was always off out with my mate somewhere doing something. The only time he ever saw me is if a cop had brought me home. Um, and we got caught several times scrumping. Um, we soon learned a lesson then out not to get caught. <laughs> what is, what is, excuse the oh, language. Scrumping. Barrier. Yeah, what is that? Uh, scrumping is, um, you know, somebody's orchard that doesn't belong to you. Sure. And they're growing apples and stuff like that. Um, well, you go in and borrow a few apples. Um, <laughs> borrow but, a few. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll give them back. Intended on giving them back, but <laughs> <laughs> I get it. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's called scrumping. Sure. Um, so, so you go nick a few apples off a tree, but um, it's it's like it's like somebody sets up a trout farm, and uh, and then you go and borrow a few fish just to see what they're like <laughs> <laughs> before committing to to going and paying the money and fishing. <laughs> Oh, that's great. I, I mean, it's, it's such a, I think, you know, I didn't, I didn't grow up like in that rough of an environment, but I grew up in a similar environment in terms of, I was outside, you know, I grew up from, mm -hmm. from six years old on, you know, I, my, my story kind of started into a, like a horse ranch type thing where we had about six acres of, of land. There was a, a fairly you know, two acre forest or so um, that I was able to kind of spend a lot of my time in because I didn't want to be around the house. Um, you know, so my, my, my parent, uh, my mom and, you know, her boyfriend knew where I was. Um, and I had had some friends nearby, but um, I think that that outdoors, like being outdoors and forcing yourself to sit outdoors, right, is, is something that, maybe that's where it comes from because we both think very similarly mm -hmm. in, in that, in that, you know, retrospectively um, that was just a time where you looked around and there was nobody that was going to help you if something happened and certainly things happened, right? Like we, I imagine we both got into situations where we were like, uh Oh, you know, like this is questionable yeah. um, whether this is, you know, safe or not. But I think, I think nature maybe has that, effect on people where if you if you really put yourself in nature to a point where you have to use caution and you have to use it i think wisely um because you know to do certain things you have to be able to risk certain things but also you have to be as cautious as possible 
um, and recognize that if you worry about things or if you mm. place emphasis on overthinking things, then opportunities will will not be available to you anymore. Um, well, well, as as for caution, I don't think we had any of that when I was growing up. I mean, God, I was to to be honest, I was lucky to survive childhood. I mean, we used to go and play on bomb sites. Um, the, the, I don't know whether you, you've ever had prefabs uh, in, in America, but um, after the war, they set up temporary housing. They called it temporary housing. I mean, they they were um, asbestos built sort of moduled sure. trailer parts for one yeah. or another word. And um, they were knocking one of these down. So we, we as kids went and helped. <laughs> when of course. When, I mean, when when the workman finished on on, <laughs> on the Friday afternoon, we'll be in there all weekend smashing things up, having a great time. And so, so we we thought we was helping. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so how how we survived some of us childhood, and then and then Saturday morning used to get half a crown's pocket money. Um, I don't know what that is in American dollars or whatever, but. Um, used to get half a crown pocket money and uh, we first thing you used to do is club together with your mates go down to the local shop and one of us would go in uh, with a, a, a note from his mum saying can I have 20 fags which is cigarettes by mm-hmm. the way not not 20 gay blokes or whatever <laughs> you have in America um, so 20 cigarettes and, and we'd be down, down the back alleys smoking away at sort of the age of about 10 uh on our way down to what we call Saturday morning pictures. So Saturday morning pictures was another great lark that we used to have uh, as kids in the sixties. And when we were growing up and it was, uh, you, you go to the movies on the Saturday morning and it's just for kids. So, so one of us would go in and pay uh, a sort of sixpence to get into the pictures. Uh, and as soon as he got in shot down to, to the back to the, where the toilets were uh, and opened the, <laughs> the window and, and half a dozen of us would climb in. <laughs> <laughs> so so we were saving it it's all pocket money to go and spend on <laughs> fags and booze <laughs> at the age of about ten. Oh was, my god. Yeah, we had some fun. And and a Saturday morning picture. So you you'd have a couple of cartoons, you you'd have um you'd have the main feature and it it'd be a, a either a western or a, a war film, or, or, or a, a comedy, or something like that. Uh, and when you come out of pictures, all the kids are sort of reacting, uh, <laughs> reenacting yeah. the, the, the film that they've just seen. So we're either playing cowboys, or we're, we're playing war, or whatever, <laughs> on the right. way home. Um, yeah. So growing up in the sixties was 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 an experience, and uh, right. I, I feel sorry for kids nowadays. They they don't get that sort of opportunity. Yeah. So to live the way that we did back then. Yeah. It's just not, it's not the same, you know, certainly, Mm. you know, my, my son's 10, you know, he's, he's that age and, you know, he has such a massively different perspective on, you know, tobacco and alcohol. And that's probably not a bad thing. Right. Um, But at the same time, like there's, there's a, a markedly different, uh, mindset difference there as well yeah. and so like the the risk the risk aversion to to children nowadays is 
um, quite a bit different, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I think we'll find out, you know, in 10, yeah, 20, 30, 40 years, we'll see. Um, but there is, there is something to be said for the mindset that you built at that age was in, in many ways, it, well, you're here, right? Like you're, you're yeah. here and you're, you're in a place where I, I imagine that you're quite happy with yourself doing your own thing. Um, yeah. you know, and, and that's, that's a good thing. And so that's something you, we can learn from. Um, but well, I'm certainly comfortable with me. Um, yeah. uh, and, and if I, if I can turn up at the pearly gates and I can say to old Peter, um, well, Pete, I've had a great life. It's been tremendous and it's one of my own choosing and I'm dying an happy man. Can I come in? <laughs> and he'll probably say, you must be joking. Hop it. You're a savage, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> you're not allowed here. <laughs> yeah, you ain't getting your wings here, mate. Hop it. <laughs> I don't worry. I'll, yeah, I'll so probably I'll, join you wherever you go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've... I've, I've I've had a great life so far. I mean, it, 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 it has been blessed, I must admit. I mean, don't get me wrong. I've had some pretty, pretty rough times in my life. I've been in some pretty dodgy situations. And I've nearly lost my life on more than a dozen occasions. Um, I imagine but, a few of those are probably army related. Most of them are, actually. <laughs> do you do you want to talk about those? I would I would love to kind of hear about, you know, like I'm, you, you know me. I'm U.S. military, yeah, yeah. and I'm U.S. military now, modern age. So I'm, I've, I'm always curious. Like when you, when you told me you, you live by the De Havilland factory. Like I grew up learning about that. Like I, I, when you said De Havilland, I was like, was he talking about the mosquito? Was he talking about the comet? Was he talking about like, yeah. you know, the different? I, I love kind of learning about that World War II history, and you know, even World War One, World War Two, into the korean age in vietnam like for for us obviously but like mm. i would love to learn you know more about the history of your progression through the military what it was like for you you know what happened obviously in in mm. your life and what were the circumstances of these tragic and traumatic situations i imagine um, i'd love to hear more of that well as a young lad at uh, 17 um my past out of training um, having done sort of best part of nine months in training, it was, um, I got posted to, to my battalion, which was the second battalion, the Royal Anglia Regiment. And at that time, the battalion was in um, Munster in West Germany. When we arrived at the battalion, the battalion was actually away on a tour of Northern Ireland. They were in Belfast. So being 17, we couldn't go. So we, we got diffed and we were stuck on rear party. So we got to kind of bed into the battalion before the battalion sort of came back and the battalion came back just before Christmas. And those of us that were on the, the rear party, we were Jeff um, with Christmas duties. So uh, Christmas day, uh, 1975, I was, um, I was on guard. <laughs> yeah. Um, New Year's Eve, um, we got the guard off and uh, we had a great party. And then the battalion came back um, and then we got posted back to England uh, in the middle of 1976. And then in 1977, 
um, the battalion went back to Belfast and, and I was in A Company at the time. And um, all through the training, we, we, we'd practiced our patrol moves because we went out in, in four-man bricks with a 12-man patrol. So a 12-man patrol would go out, three bricks of four. So we we operated one one team on the ground, giving cover, well, scheme and manoeuvre, basically. Yes. We were patrolling this. We've been out there for a couple of months. During training, um, we practised. Um, I was always uh, in our four-man brick. I was a front right man, um, my mate Alan, who was the, the team boss, was on the front left. I had um, a guy called Chris behind me, and he had Terry behind him. We're coming down out of the Mooryard into Spring Hill Avenue in, in the Bally Murphy in, in San West Belfast. And um, we came round the top of the, this, this street, and, and he said, change. For what? Swap sides. We hadn't done this since we got there. We did it in training, but for, for this bizarre reason, he, two months in, he said change. So we swapped sides. We'd only got, I don't know, 70, 100 metres down the road. Uh, and it was crack, crack. There was two rounds came at us. I, I Bang, bang. I fired two rounds back. Took some cover. As I looked over, the boss's Alan has fallen to the ground. He'd just been shot. And uh, I got over to him, dragged him into cover. And he, he's, he's sending a, a contact report. And I can remember, clear as day, he said, hello, one, this is one free, bravo, contact, Spring Hill Avenue, send Starlight, I've been shot in the ass. out. <laughs> <laughs> that threw a little bit of confusion. I've gone into the state, you know, we, we, we we're trying to find out where the exit wound is and everything. And and there's just a little hole in the back of his pants mm -hmm. where, in his butt. Um, but the, the round had actually come in, gone through his groin and straight out. Um, the, the other round had gone into somebody's kitchen. Um, <laughs> the street had started to fill up. What we, I mean, the initial follow-up we did down the road, where the shot had come from, with his contact report, we thought it'd come behind us. Um, anyway, the, the, the other troops, the, 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 the we have a, a special type of ambulance, it's called a Saracen, which is an armoured ambulance, came in, it was the first thing to get to us. Then the rest of the patrol came in. We got him away. We started to do the follow-up. We recovered the weapon um, and also saw that where my second round had gone, um, it must have gone was past this bloke's ear because he'd left the weapon behind and, and scarpered. But the second round had hit the church and taken out a stained glass window <laughs> of a church in, in the Bally Murphy. Um, so that was one of the, 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 the sort of defining moments of, of, of it could have been me. Yeah, and it wasn't, but but to this day, um, I still don't know, and he he can't remember saying why he changed or anything like that. So, well, that was one of the first tough incidents we had to deal with because we we then had to 
um, and a patrol, then we had to get a new person into to our uh, brick to to finish off the rest of the the tour. A few days later, um, I got blown up myself uh, with another lad. He took most of the blast, uh, and I ended up landing on me me head and, and getting a big gash on me head. But I was left out in the streets for about another six hours while we were trying to mop up this this incident. I mean, because we we'd originally got called out to a riot um, up on a place called Kelly's Corner, which is the, the corner of Springfield Road and the White Rock Road. And there's a um, a post office up there. So there's a big demonstration going on outside of this. We got crashed out because we were on the QRF, Quick Ration Force. Yep. As we got up there, they started kicking off, throwing a few stones at us and one thing or another. So we sort of up around the back of some houses to go over a fence to come back out from a different direction and and as we were going over this fence there was a command debt that that blew me and um, a guy called paddy up he took most of the blast they dragged him off to hospital he had 175 stitches up of his back and his back of these legs and stuff and i got away with being um my ears ringing i couldn't hear anything for for a few days and, and a bang on my head um, but I, I was left out on the street. I was, yeah, it was, that was quite difficult to deal with. And then we, we also, out on patrol one night, we found a guy that had been um, beaten up, kneecapped and um, uh, left for dead. Um, so it was, a, it was a pretty rough tour. I mean, we had lots and lots of incidents every day. I mean, I stopped half house brick with my head. That hurt. Um because we were going around in soft hats at the time. We could either go out with, with flak jackets on or, or if we didn't want to wear them, we, we didn't have to. Um, depends on the sort of patrol we were going out on, whether we used the flak jackets or not. We were also on a search team at that time. So our, our, our debt was a search team. So we, we went in to do some searches uh, and we found a few weapon systems and, and ammunition stuff and... Um, there was one particular house that we we searched and it was minging absolutely heaving it was honking i can't tell you some of the stuff that we found in this house but when we came back in off of that we had to have uh, all our kit strip searched we had to or, or stripped off that was burnt we were deloused oh it was horrific uh i did get a new set of kit out of it because <laughs> the stuff i was wearing was almost worn out so that was a pretty tough tour. Um, when we got back the following year, we got posted to Berlin. And Berlin was the best posting the battalions probably ever had, even to this day. I mean, Berlin in, in 1978 to 1980 was an awesome place to be. And we had such, I mean, the, the, the best duty that you could get um, was the British military train. Uh, I mean, it was, it was a long day, but it, 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 was a, it, was, it was such a fun duty to do. I mean, it was a little bit boring at times because you're on the Rattler. But when, when you got into the station, the, the, the guys that were on duty, it was a bit of pomps and, pomp and circumstance to, to go and get the, the passports checked and one thing or another. But the train itself was like, um, like the Orient Express. It was... It was opulent. It was, 
everybody was sort of dressed smart uh, and, and and laid on some fantastic grub. And, and it was just as you was getting into these two stations that you were getting a decent grub. Uh, so the, the poor old East Germans that were, were patrolling up and down the train were looking in. Uh, I don't know what they must have thought about what we were doing, but it's um, it was a fun duty. The other fun duty was um, flag tours that took us over into East Berlin. Now, if you've ever seen the old black and white films of um, something like The 39 Steps or um, Harry Lyme, then going from West Berlin, which was really colourful, opulent and, and flashy, into East Berlin through Checkpoint Charlie, it was literally going from a colour film to a black and white film. Wow. Everything in East Berlin was grey. People were grey. Everything was grey. I mean, it was, just, it, it, it was a bizarre sense when you went into East Berlin. Um, but we used to go for in a big Opal Imperial, like a big limousine type, uh, just four of us in, in our best uniforms. And, and when you come get through Checkpoint Charlie into into East Berlin, you'd pick up a tail and you either had um, a Russian tail that followed you around or an East German tail that followed you around. Uh, and the Americans went over, the French went over uh, and it's just showing the flag basically. And there was a few places that you had to visit. The uh, the Tomb of the Adno Soldier, which was a Russian one. Um, there was a few cafes that we went to. There was um, a museum, uh, there was a Russian museum in East Berlin. Um, so, it was it was quite good fun, and our life expectancy in Berlin at the time was probably about six hours. If <laughs> <laughs> the Russians decided that they're coming, where we lived um, in a place just the other side of Cladau, uh, our barracks was Montgomery Barracks, and just where my my quarter was because I was married at the time uh, was was about. 100 metres from my front door was the wall, the back wall. Oh. And just the other side of the wall was a big Russian camp. I mean, we, you could you could hear the, the tanks rattling around on, on in this, this camp all the time. Um, so you guys you got, probably weren't the, you weren't on the high end of that six hour life expect, expectancy. If they were, nah, we were probably at the bottom end of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, living that life in Berlin, you, you never gave it a second thought. Right. I mean, it, it, it was more about having fun than anything else. Berlin. I mean, um, probably one of the probably one of the funniest duties, or, or one of the, the difficult duties, was um, guarding um, Spandau Prison. Rudolf Hess was still alive, and um, he was a funny bugger because he's he's got his whole almost prison all to himself. He's kind of the only prisoner in there and it rotates the guard rotates so you've got the russians in there you've got the americans got us and got the french and we take turns of a, a month at a time to to guard hess and, and it basically for for a grunt is it, standing on a sangha and and the briefing is you're not allowed to look inside the the prison especially when he's out doing his bit of exercise uh, and if you're seen looking at him, then 
what happens is you get into trouble. <laughs> you couldn't make it up. Um, so Berlin was awesome. And then, uh, and then from Berlin, we got posted back to Northern Ireland and we were a resident battalion up in Londonderry. So we spent two years up there and uh, that had its moments. That was um, during the Falklands War. So the Falklands War kicked off and, and that was, um, we had a bit of a hard time because the, the IRA wasn't in, in the news at the time and it was all the, the British Army doing this and, and, and the Marines. Yeah. So we, we got a bit of a hard time out of it, but we dealt with it and moved on. So, uh, so yeah, that was that was difficult times as, as as well. When you, you know, when you were obviously in Northern Ireland, that's you know, for for, I imagine a lot of my listeners they don't know a lot of the history about how, you know, what what it was like in Belfast at the time. It's a war zone. I, I can give you I can it's, give you a, a quick synopsis of what it was all about. Yeah. Back in 1969, there about 68, 69, the the Protestants in Northern Ireland were giving the Catholics an awful hard time. The police were struggling at coping. The British Army were called in to aid the civil power. So we went in in, in a 68, 69 to help the police uh, control. The situation. So we went in initially to protect the Catholics from the Protestants. Then it all started going pitong, and the, the the Catholics started picking on us. Right. Back in the nineteen, I think it was around the nineteen twenties, the British pulled out, or, or the British um, split Ireland, and we took the six counties in the north and left Southern Ireland for the Irish. Whether it was the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do at the time, I don't know. Um, I wasn't there, I was elsewhere at the time. <laughs> but, Obviously. <laughs> but as time went on, the, 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 you got the groups like the IRA, the, yeah. um, the nationalists and, the, and, and so forth. Um, then, turning the tables and picking on the British Army. And we were in there for the best part of 30-odd years. There are po positives to take out of this. Um, the, the positives is that Northern Ireland was a fantastic training ground uh, for live operations. So it, it made the British soldier really good at what we do. That's probably one of the, 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 the best things that we can take out of that conflict in Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. At the moment, um, I don't know whether you've seen much on the news, but recently we've, we've just had local elections and the, uh, the Sinn Féin, which is the political arm of the IRA, have now got control of Northern Ireland in, in Stormont, in, in the, the Parliament or the, the devolved administration in Northern Ireland. So the, the, the worry at the moment is that Northern Ireland, because of certain things that have been put into the Northern Ireland Pokes Protocol and, and the, the, the Northern Ireland peace process, they can now have a referendum whether to reunite Ireland or not. 
Yeah. So and that's its that's its own kind of political. That's its own problem. I mean, yeah. since I mean that 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 throws up whole raft of other stuff. The um, yeah. Since since the UK voted to leave the European Union, the European Union have been using every trick they can to punish us for leaving and that, that's i mean it, why we haven't told them to stuff it and go wto uh, rules on trade i don't know why we haven't scrapped article 16 why we haven't ditched the torn up the lord nine and protocol i don't know um for some reason the, the government just seem to they must be masochists because the the eu continually beat us i mean they're like whipping boys um they, they're just continually beating us and punishing us for voting to leave the european union we haven't voted to leave europe i mean we're still part of europe we, we we're kind of europeans but we don't want to be um, dictated to by unelected bureaucrats and that's why the vast majority of people voted to leave the european union Get i'm sure <laughs> yeah i mean it's to me it's i i i somewhat understand the situation but it's it's just so up so far outside of my scope of yeah, uh it's... you know i'm i'm american obviously and so that's where i i kind of focus my understanding we have our own problems obviously um everybody has their own problems and and we've all got to figure them out at some point Mm -hmm. um or we won't and we'll figure that out but uh now it's you know i just wanted to kind of give a little bit of background in terms of you know when you're walking into northern ireland you know you're not you're not walking into you know some potato farming communities like you're walking into semi-war zone type areas well it's it's, it's a guerrilla war Basically, it, it was a guerrilla war. You didn't know who your enemy were. Right. You never saw them. They were cowards. Mm-hmm. Basically, they, 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 it, it was a, uh, a bunch of terrorists um, conducting a guerrilla operation. Um, much the same as what's unfolding at the moment in Ukraine. Ukrainians uh, are giving the Russians something of a bloody nose. The Russians got the same treatment when they were in Afghanistan in the 70s. So did um, we. They, they, yeah. I mean, well, we we kind of did, we didn't. I mean, when we... For us, it was it was a different barrel of monkeys altogether. Yeah. Um, the, the, the Taliban were... Um, I, mean, I think, I think just, by the just start... Just recent, this, this last week... The, the Taliban have now really mugged off the, the, the women in Afghanistan right. uh, and forcing them back into the burqa. Right. Um, and we're to turn that around. And I really, really feel passionately sorry for for the, the, the young women and, and, and girls in Afghanistan because they've had 20 years where they've been able to go to school, they've been able to get half a decent education, uh, and they've been able to, to learn. And now that's been taken away from them. And you can't imagine how they must be feeling. Yeah. And, 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 and the worst of it is we can't do anything about it at the moment. 
there's no political will to go in go back into afghanistan and sort that problem out and 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 unfortunately there's going to be generations of girls that are going to be suppressed uh, as they were before and it, it it just beggars belief that that they're getting away with it yeah. um but there you go that's 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 a, a yeah, another, another fight for for another day i guess right but my time in afghanistan i had i had an awesome time I did three tours of, of Afghanistan and and loved every one of them. When when were you in Afghanistan? I was in <laughs> I was in Macedonia in um, in two thousand one when nine eleven happened, and I know exactly where I was. I was sat outside Camp Able Sentry. We called it Anal Entry. Um, the guys was inside doing a little bit of shopping in the PX. I was sat outside in the in the car listening to the radio and it came over that there was something kicked off in new york grabbed the guys we shot back to our our camp which is to the shoe factory in in scopier as we got into the ops room and we got some big tellies up one thing or another uh, and, and we stood there and we just watched that second plane going to the, the twin towers and um there were some americans on the operation with us and they wanted to nukes the rest of the world it was pretty scary some of the stuff that they came out with anyway five months later i found myself in kabul <laughs> yep. oh. freezing freezing me nuts off yep. <laughs> yeah so the, the back end of january 2002 i was in i was in kabul and i was there until the 20th of june when we handed over to the turks so we're over myself where were you? So you were in like, was that when ISEF headquarters was kind of centralized yeah, I, in like? Was, yeah, in the university building, um, just okay. behind the, um, I think it was a police academy, uh, the military academy, but just uh, just or, next to where we were. Um, was the was the military academy? Um, so from my so I was in Afghanistan or I was in Kabul twice, right in 2012 yeah. and 2019. Um, and it's changed so much even between those years, but um, it's, it's not it's not the one out on the Jalalabad Road. It's the one just around the corner from the American Embassy. Oh, so sure. You come past the American Embassy, down the road, you've got Radio Television um, Afghanistan on the right, yeah. and then over on the left, you've got what used to be the University Building, yeah, uh, which was the ISAF headquarters at the time. Yeah, uh, and we had a, a setup there. Yeah. Um, and I was in psychological operations and um, we were we were responsible for the setting up the ISAF news. So sure. it was a, a, a tri-language tri newspaper in English, Pashto and Dari, mainly good news stories going out to um, going out to, to the locals. And I spent a lot of time on the ground speaking to locals, getting stories. I interviewed Ashraf Ghani, I asked, uh, uh, Hamid Karzai, the Minister of the Hajj, uh, and a few other leaders wow. uh, for the newspaper. And um, and, and it, it was a success. And we handed that over to the Turks, thinking that that'll go by the wayside. When I got back to Afghanistan in 2000, late 2005, early, early 2006, the newspaper, if evolved a little bit it was now in color 
it was now a tabloid size and it was going across the country wow and uh, and i saw copies of it in 2006 down in in helmand province well good job uh, for the good job to the turks right like that yeah, usually yeah, doesn't happen they, 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 they run with it i mean <laughs> a really really funny story in warehouse camp uh, which is on the jalalabad road just before you, you've got camp suter over if you turn off left just along there you've got the brick camp camp suter it was called at the time just a bit further along the jalalabad road you've got um warehouse camp where the kind of the Turks, well, the Germans were in there mainly at the time and a few other, sort of the other nations. Um, and the Germans Ops Info Battalion, which is their PSYOPs guys, invited, when the, the Turks were coming in, getting ready to take over. So they came in quite early uh, and we had um, Turkish PSYOPs operators, I guess, what using the term fairly loosely come in and um, we were handing over to them we gave them loads of kit and all the rest of it but the germans decided to to lay on a big barbecue for us all you can see where this one's going so we we we, we, t- <laughs> we turned up with the turks but it's this barbecue and then we got a few near beers um which is pretty disgusting stuff um but <laughs> <laughs> but this barbecue was great. It's <laughs> pork steaks and sausages. <laughs> the Turks just had the salad. <laughs> you couldn't make it up. I mean, talk about insensitive. <laughs> yeah. But there you go. That's that's the Germans for you. Um yeah. but it was it was it was great fun. We had uh, had a really good time in in, in Kabul. I had a pretty good time down in Helmand. Um, it was pretty, back in 2006 when we got down there, it was early, late late 2005, early 2006, when we went back into uh, Afghanistan and we took over Helmand province in the south there. And um, the Taliban were a bit stupid at the time. They thought that um, it was a shooting war and, and went out on patrol was out on patrol with some guys. Um, we got dropped off by helicopter, and and I was carrying my patrol kit weighed forty two kilos, mainly made up of ammunition and water. That's a that's about ninety pounds for for the Americans listening to this. Uh, yeah, and, and maybe a little and bit I'm, more. Uh, and I'm wondering why my knees are <laughs> giving me yeah. trouble now. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so we got dropped off by a helicopter. Um, I, I, I've got some work to do in this particular village that we uh, we were working with. We had a bit of a shura with the, the leaders, and when we were extracting out of the village, our comms had gone down. Next thing that happened was um, we got opened up on by the Taliban. Um it was roughly about nine hours later. We'd cover about <laughs> we cover about a mile and a half, to, uh, and we managed to finally, finally get comms in, get some fast air in. It dropped a couple of five hundred pounders on these buggers, but they were like falling plates. I mean, the, the AK forty seven is not an accurate weapon. How we didn't get anybody shot that day is a miracle but we 
we, we estimated we dropped, I don't know, about 30 Taliban. Yeah. And they were still coming at us. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, we, we managed to get this, this, this concept called in some fast air and the helicopter came back and picked us up. But, yeah, it was a, it was a tough day. Yeah. I didn't have an awful lot of weight carrying when I got back. Right. I was yeah. almost down to my last magazine of uh, ammunition. Um, and we were almost down to the last round per man, like, <laughs> thinking, is it going to be? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but, I mean, I... Yeah, that, 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 was a, that was a pretty hectic day, uh, I must admit. Right. Um, and then when I went back in 2008, nine, um, it changed to um, IEDs mainly. Yeah. And uh, I, I went out on four patrols um, on that, although I spent my whole time bouncing around the whole of Helmand, putting in a, a, a radio network, uh, a commercial radio network, radio in a box, sure. uh, which is a, a 50 watt um, transmitter, FM transmitter. Um, with a media box on and we were playing music and sending out psychological operations met, met, um, messages and stuff like that public information so I spent my whole time going around doing that but on, a, on four occasions I actually uh, had to go out and help out a sure or something like that that's going out going into a particular village um, twice we got hit by IEDs uh, and, and guys lost their lives, and a couple of guys lost their limbs. So that was that was pretty tough. Um, yeah. And 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 the word on from from the command was that if you don't need to go on the ground, don't don't right. don't get involved in military tourism. Right. Leave it to the professionals to go out and do the job properly. Don't go get don't get caught going out to see what it's like. And then. And and I guess it was like a lot of Americans that go into a, a war zone. Mm-hmm. People never left Bastion. Yep. You fly fly into Bastion, you do your six month tour, you fly back out of Bastion, you never get to see the country. I, on the other hand, was really fortunate that I was able to to get around a lot of the country. Um, I was in the south in in uh, um, Garcia. I was in the north at Kajaki. I was at the dam uh, in Kajaki. I was in um, Sangin. Spent quite a lot of time in the Sangin Valley in, in different uh, patrol bases. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, I, 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 I've seen a lot of Afghanistan. Met a lot of locals and, um, yeah, great respect for, for Afghans. I mean, yeah. they, are, they are nice, hospitable people. And... It's just, just a shame that what's going on with them. But there you go. It's it's one of these things that that unfortunately the world's full of it. Yeah, I spent I spent most of my time, um, pretty much all my time in Kabul for the most part. I was also in uh, uh, the uh, Kunar River Valley. Um, just north of JBAD. I spent some time in JBAD, but not just, you know, transporting yeah. through. Um, but most of my time was in, was in Kabul. It was, you know, I, it, I have the same, I have the same kind of uh, perspective on it. You know, they, the people that I met were all in, incredibly mm. kind, incredibly grateful, um, incredibly 
open to having us there. Obviously, we didn't meet the other half of the people that didn't agree with it. Um, but, you know, especially Kabul, Kabul such a was that kind of bastion of uh, forward thinking, progressive thinking. And so there were a lot more people in Kabul that thought yeah. the way that we did. We, they gave us that perspective. We want this. Um, yeah. Well, Kabul was um, under the Shah back in the um, 50s, 60s um, and 70s, was trying to bring Afghanistan into the 21st century. Mm-hmm. He, had, he was forward thinking. He, it was a cosmopolitan area. You look back at the films at the time and, and, and research what it was like at the time. People going around in Western clothes, the university... Um, was was popular. Yeah. Women were allowed there, wearing Western dress. Um, then the the Russians were invited in to, to help with the infrastructure in the country. So a lot of the stuff that you see that the, the the infrastructure that's built in Afghanistan was built by the Russians. The problem that the Russians made was they tried to. Um, to have too much influence in the country. And there were factions that were fighting against that, um, which then kicked off wanting to get rid of the Russians. So the Mujahideen then started on the the Russians and that was a a pretty much a guerrilla war. And uh, uh, nobody has ever won against the Afghans. Go right back to Alexander the Great even yeah. he didn't manage it yeah so it's um, just a it, but they know, the, are a proud proud people and, and yeah. a lot of respect for them well it's the it's unforgiving country right like yeah. the the oh, when it's you, harsh on the body right when you it's harsh on equipment it's harsh on everything yeah when you step into afghanistan and you realize what you're facing for the first time you know it is you know you, you walk into it like for me i was young um, and and su- supremely ignorant, right? And and even with that, I was there were still parts of me where I was like, you know what? Don't don't over you know don't don't overestimate your capacity for you know doing this job and and your ability. Like, be humble. But when you get there and you see the mountains for the first time, and you see, you know, and you start thinking about the task that you are that that's placed upon you of like. This is what I'm supposed to do. This is what our country is trying to do. You start to realize that there's a reason these people, you know, are, are not necessarily winning, but they're not, we're not, we're not beating them, right? Like there's still, okay. there's still resistance here. There's a reason because they've lived in this country for millennia, Centuries. you know, and, and you, you look at it and you're like, you, you look at these mountains, you're like, wow, like this is absolutely insane. Yeah, like there's, there's nothing easy about, yeah, like you, like you said, there's nothing easy about it on people. There's nothing easy about it on uh, equipment. There's nothing easy about it in terms of logistics and planning. Nothing is easy. And so the people that have lived in Afghanistan for the millennia that they live there, um, they did so through grit and tenacity, and it's become a piece of their culture. Um, and if you don't respect that, like that's obviously why Alexander the yeah. Great didn't make it. The British obviously didn't, you know, didn't make it out of there. 
Well, the first, first couple of times we were in there, we, right. we certainly didn't appreciate it. Right. You know, <laughs> I think the, we did the last time we were in there. The Russians and, and even us, right? Like yeah. NATO and ISAF forces, we, we, we didn't walk away from that unscathed. And, and obviously mm-hmm. there's, you know, it, it's just a, it's a tough place to, to approach having a conflict of any, of any sorts there. And it's, mm-hmm. it is hard to see, you know, the people of Afghanistan facing what they're facing now. Um, but you know, we've got, again, we've got our own problems. You guys got your own problems. Afghanistan has its yeah. own problems. And I think if there's anything I take away from the war, um, I think what we showed the people of Afghanistan is that there's, there's a different way to approach things. Yeah. And hopefully they remember that, right. Ho- hopefully yeah. they take that and, and say, you know what, maybe we don't need to do it with all of the influence of everyone outside of us, but we can approach this from a different standpoint. We can have what we had before and allow people to live their lives, right? You know, maybe that's, maybe that's a potential, maybe, you know, the the Taliban is not the Taliban that we initially fought, you know, in 2001 and 2003, um, so maybe it's a maybe that but, will change but there things. Again, lepers don't change their spots readily. That's and true. I think that the current bunch of Taliban, yeah, they got a few mouthpieces that are making the right kind of noises, but the, the the vast majority of them haven't changed. They're still clamping down on the the, the locals. Yeah. I, I, I've got I've got Afghan friends that I speak to all the time. Um, I've got a couple of guys that have just in the last few weeks managed to um, get themselves out of Afghanistan. They've got leave to come here. Um, So we're working on getting them here. But the the stories that they've told that that what's still going on uh, in Afghanistan is, 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 is pretty horrific. The way that they're treating, um, if they find guys, the, the, the problem is that the Taliban took over and they've got all the biometric, information yeah. that the government had on people so they know who worked for us they know who worked for foreign right. uh, foreigners and That's... they're actively seeking them out and they are punishing them yeah um and what they're doing to, to women in afghanistan just just it horrifies me really yeah does. That's uh that is one of the unfortunate things that you know, however, however that mistake was made, you know, it, it, it's yeah. certainly, you know, whoever's to blame, or maybe there's a lot of different people to blame, but that information should never have seen the light of day, you yeah. know, especially in a, a country like Afghanistan. That, that stuff should have been secret, top secret information that we, yeah. you know, you know, you know, sanitized of sorts. Um, and just, yeah. It's it's really unfortunate to see stuff like that kind of happen. Yeah, I, th- I think I think one of the um, one of the toughest things to think about is that it was so unnecessary that the way the way it collapsed, the way it did. Yeah. As far as I, I'm aware, America had around about two and a half thousand troops in there supporting the ANA uh, with air power. And they just withdrew it. And th- we, we, without that air support, that air superiority, the, the ANA 
were fighting a losing battle, and yeah. that's how the Taliban was so easy, found it so easy to to take over the country so quickly, right. and, yeah. um, and 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 the, and the chaos that was caused with the evacuation was just criminal. Um, and and I, I, I hold, I mean, Biden wholly responsible for it, but I also hold the other NATO countries that right. wouldn't stand up yep. and support the UK to, 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 to put up a few extra troops just to stay in there and, and provide that uh, additional support to the ANA with the air cover. And, yeah. and say, and, and that's the reason it collapsed. Yeah. I mean, we couldn't do it on our own at the time, unfortunately. Else, we would have done. What's yeah. um, well, it's, I, it's I feel really bitter about the way it was conducted. Yeah, I, you know, I don't, I don't disagree with you know the the blame put on Biden, um, but there's a lot of people that are involved in this decision like that, yeah. right? You know, and, absolutely. And I, don't, I know Trump. Trump originally said that he was going to pull the troops out, but I, I believe that he would have pulled them out in, in a sustainable way that, that right. it wouldn't have created the, the, the chaos that it did. Yeah, I think I think the the whoever you know, and I I I certainly don't have. I was in sniper school when all this happened, so I was I was kind of out of the loop, and I didn't really at the time care because I wanted to pass sniper school. That was that was my priority. Mm. Um, and I was, I also have COVID at this time. So I'm like struggling through COVID at sniper school. It's, you know, hundred, hundred fucking degrees and I'm dying. Um, mm. and you know, so it wasn't on my mind, but you know, wherever the decision was to, uh, strip down Bagram before Kabul was uh, to me absolutely ridiculous. You know, yeah. like the, the, like Bagram was the logistical hub that you know there's air support there that is the yeah. you know the priority you know kaya is not going to be you know that's that's uh the airport in in kabul is not going to be a sustainable um air support uh yeah. you know hub for military operations it's a it's an international airport so it's, it's just not going to work but uh, that that decision, on top of so many other decisions, there's so many people that need to be, you know, understood that there are there's blame to be had all over the yeah. place for the failures of Afghanistan. It's quite unfortunate, you know. We could Monday morning quarterback it all day, but the fact is, mm. we we failed them, you know. And and in many ways, we owe the people of Afghanistan an apology of sorts. Absolutely, you know? a lot of people do, you know. And I certainly, yeah. you know, I. I I don't even know, you know, but I, I do, I feel, you know, I've, I've had some interpreters reach out to me and I've tried to help, you know, some of them get out of mm -hmm. Afghanistan. Some of them have, um, but a lot of their families haven't. And that's like the hard part of like, yeah, their families they, are stuck. They have to leave the families behind, yeah. which is, which is it's tragic, which is another tragedy in itself. Yeah. But Bagram, I mean, I went up to Bagram a couple of times and and it was a horrible place. I thought <laughs> it was just, it's just a dust bowl. Yep, it's fishbowl. I mean, just that 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 yep. powder dust yep. that's everywhere. Um, how the, how you guys operated up there? I haven't got a Scooby. I but, um, I I didn't want to, so I never. <laughs> I, I stayed there as little as possible. <laughs> well, we, I mean, we had a little bit similar down in uh, in the Sangin Valley. Um, yep. 
um, during the winter, the, the mud down there, you wouldn't believe. Yeah. <laughs> it's horrendous. Most of my time, you know, was, uh, you know, obviously Kunar, Kunar province is, it's rock. It's all, it's all just yeah. that shale that, you know, that nasty shale. Um, and, and that's got its own issues, but it certainly wasn't that dust, right? It was, it was just a different, different beast when you go to Bagram. But um, yeah. other than that, like, you know, at Kabul, like Kabul's a dust bowl, right? Like, yeah. you know, Bagram's centralized right in this big, you know, literally surrounded by a ring of mountains that yeah. you, know, you can just all look at them. Um, but Kabul itself is just a massive dust yeah. bowl. And it's, you know, at the time in 2012, when I was there, there was 5 million people in a city meant for 2 million. Right. Yeah. Um, and it was just, I mean, did you ever, did the, the, the road from um, Kabul to, to Bagram is an interesting road. You go over that pass and you see, the, the the mines laying at the side of the road and, yeah. and, the, and the tanks up on the hill yep. they've all been blown to bits and yeah yeah it's, I mean, it's such an interesting city interesting. yeah like we we were kabul or we were the kabul qrf at the time in 2012 um so like the nato uh yeah. nato qrf mission at the time and we would drive all around the city and it it's just so interesting to see the culture, the, like what people are living in, living with, yeah. you know, it's just such a, it gives you so much perspective on, you know, when I'm sitting here in my home, which is, you know, mostly wood, right? There's windows, there's, there's doors, there's, you know, I've got an air conditioning unit right outside a heat unit, central air. Um, I've got running water and comparatively to most of Afghanistan and even most of Kabul, which is the most forward yeah. thinking city and the most, you know, technologically yeah. advanced city, you know, these people are running around with cell phones, but they have no running water, right. Mm. For, for some of these houses, they have no, lots of power problems all the yeah, time. It's great problems go down. Time. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's just remarkable that, you know, most people don't have the understanding to look at that, you know, like mm. for, for those of us who've been there and we look at that and we're like, we're very grateful. Like I'm incredibly grateful for the home I have right now, you know, and the yeah. ability to, to look out my, look outside my window and see green, right? Like that's, that's so wonderful because for mm. most of my time in Afghanistan, all I saw was tan, right? Yeah. It, was, it was tan rocks, you know, red rocks, like brown rocks, you know, and, and maybe for three months out of the year, you saw green, right? You saw growing yeah. season. Um, and it's just a different country. It's a different place, and it's a harsh, harsh place. You know, but fascinating. Yeah, but fascinating. Absolutely. If I if I had the opportunity to go there for a holiday, I would jump at it. Yeah, I I, I loved Afghanistan. It's yeah. one of my favorite countries I've ever been to. It's so it is so beautiful. It's so different. It's so different, and yeah. the culture there is amazing, and yeah. uh, the people are incredible how they how they survive the way they do is is, is is i mean they are tough proud people and that's the only way to describe them yeah i agree but there you go that's afghanistan for you yeah well i wanted to i wanted to ask you in in all this you know i i know how the u.s army has transitioned me back home but you've been through sounds like so many different conflicts in so many different areas what 
what did the army, you know, and the British government and, and, you know, the, the people, how was your transition back to civilian life? What was that like? What were the challenges, you know, or was it nothing and you kind of figured it out? How did you kind of go through that process of being, you know, a warrior on, on one hand and then coming back home and recognizing I can't, I'm not going to do that anymore. Who do I become? What was that like for you? Unlike the majority of guys that, that come or go into a conflict zone and come back from a conflict zone, my early days I went in as a, as a part of a Forbes unit. Um, they didn't have, back then, it, it, you didn't have the, the decompression systems that you have now. They didn't have the understanding that they do now of, of mental health issues. And I guess we didn't really... Do we have mental health issues? I don't think I did. I mean, there was one particular incident um, when I came back from um, Ireland in 1977, having been out there for, for I think it was four or six months um, tour. I was on, on leave. I was walking up the town with my mum. She's rabbiting away and and the car backfired, not taking cover. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Quickly assess the situation. Thinking, you daft bugger. <laughs> Got up, went and joined my mum again. She hadn't even noticed I'd gone. <laughs> <laughs> so back then, I mean, the skills and drills must have must have just kicked in automatically. I wouldn't take, yeah. take cover, don't test, just assess the situation. <laughs> yeah. On certainly on my last seven operational tours, I went out. Apart from the last two, I went out as an augmentee, uh, an individual augmentee. Coming back on every single operation, I missed going through the decompression. Um, normally, what happens is you come back from, say, Afghanistan or Iraq. We'd stop off in Cyprus, you'd, you'd, you'd decompress, you'd, 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 they'd give you beer and, and let you go and sit on a beach and get pissed for a couple of days uh, and then bring you back. Um, and then you have uh, an assessment that they'd ask you, um, have you had any problems, any nightmares and all the rest of it? And uh, of course, everybody says, no, no, no problem at all. Um, because you know if you do say something, right. it's, it's, it's a stigma. It, you, you're then um, subjected to all sorts of um, stuff when you're not. I mean, it, 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 there's a ways of dealing with it. And we, we are getting better at it um, with the trim process that, that happens when you're actually on, on the ground in operations. If you get a traumatic incident, what they do is they 72 hours after the incident, a team will come in, they'll, they'll look at the incident, they'll, they'll assess everybody that was on it, anywhere connected to it, um, and they'll, they'll let, have a chat with people, work out how to fit in at the time. They'll come back in 30 days later, do a reassessment to see if anything's changed, um, to let people know that it's not unusual, um, to have the feelings that you might be feeling, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. And then they'll do a follow-up 72 hours later. That's all well and good, and that does work. 
the problems you get is where you've got combat troops that are continually right. in in conflict where you've got incident after incident you're losing people left right in chelsea and it's really difficult to 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 manage those guys with their um with what they've seen yeah so and and and, and then trying to deal with it when they come back because although they go through the trim process before during and after it's not until a lot later that people start getting the symptoms and yeah. and and even now 40 years on we're still getting veterans that are having problems from the Falklands war yeah. in 1982 so it it affects people long term yeah what they try and do and alleviate is take them through uh, this decompression where they go through um cyprus and and they go down the beach and they get pissed for a few days and uh, talk about it and stuff like that. I never, I missed all of those opportunities. Even coming back as, as the last two times as a formed unit, we missed it because of one reason or another. The flight we were on was a, a Kazakh flight and, and flew direct back to the UK. So we missed out all of that uh, on one occasion. And the other occasion, we came back as as a different uh, we came back at different times uh, the way that we were doing the rip relief in place yeah um so so again i missed it um then when i i demobilized um i was asked have i got any problems well i didn't have any problems i i have a slightly different way of looking at it i mean yes i've seen a huge amount of of of, of stuff in my time um from from the days in northern ireland days in in kosovo uh, the days in um, afghanistan and iraq i've seen a, a lot of conflict i've seen a lot of horror but the way i look at it is that it, it was my job maybe it'll affect me in years to come i don't know but at the moment uh, it's 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 compartmentalized um and it is part of the job. You, you're going to see that horror. So I've, I've dealt with it. I don't have nightmares about it. Occasionally I think about some of the stuff I've done, especially talking to guys about it. But yeah. but I think by talking about some of this stuff with, with guys that have been through the same sort of stuff, then it, it, it just, does it normalise it? It, 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 it? it kind of makes it, um, not a problem. It, it yeah. makes it something that that is part of the job that you do. Right. So that's how I've dealt with it. It's almost um, a preparation for it. Yeah. To, to be and, what it is. And, and the other really funny part about it, I can go away on a six-month tour. I can see all this stuff going on and, and one thing or another. And particularly with my previous wife i mean she died of cancer um back in 2006 but all the tours i'd done previous um i'll get home walk through the door uh, and within 10 minutes it'd be like I've, i haven't left there's been no change um other than the house had changed i came i came back one time i've been away for six months 
I walked in the front door and I had to walk back out again, check that I've walked into the right house because the whole of the downstairs had changed. <laughs> no kitchen, no bathroom, <laughs> no stairs. <laughs> What's she been doing while I've been away? <laughs> yeah. Remodeled the house. Yeah, so that, that was that was quite amusing. Do you do you um, think that that kind of reception of uh like bringing you back i don't know if the like like the family almost bringing you back into like you never left kind of thing was beneficial like how do you think that uh, affected your transition and your perspective right obviously your perspective is so powerful in this situation where you have this preparation for you know that this is part of the job and this is a piece of it and you have these conversations but how much is the family life kind of welcoming you back home a part of it for you um well it's just the way that we were i mean we've been we've been married for for, for a lot of years um and and, and i've always been going away um and i come back and, and nothing had changed we, we were the same people although i'd seen an awful lot I didn't talk to her about it. Um, she just accepted that it's what I did as a job, and and um, and I just dealt with it in my own way. So, so it was just that. I mean, I, I, I come back and it's just like ten minutes through walking through the door, nothing's changed. Um, I mean, other than the house, yeah. <laughs> but but. But our relationship hadn't changed. I mean, back in the early days, I mean, writing blueies, writing letters. Yeah. Um, so, so you didn't have the communications that we have now, and, yeah. and particularly the, uh, even back then, it was it was difficult. Um, prior to two thousand six, communications wasn't as good as it is nowadays. Yeah. So didn't. I mean, occasionally you get managed to get a phone call, um, but other than that, I mean, she just accepted the fact that it's what I did. Right. Um, so, yeah, we just got on with life, I suppose. Yeah. And uh, the current Mrs. Hill, um, uh, she's the same. So it's, it's just like <laughs> I just we 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 do our own thing, but we do things together as well, and and. And if 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 I'm if I've been away, then when I come back, it, it, it we just fall into how we were before, um, and it works for us. Yeah. So. Well, that's good. Hmm. Yeah, I I think that's, you know, and just the the two different deployments I went on, you know, 2012 was kind of the advent of Facebook Messenger, right? Um, hmm. And so there was communication there, but it wasn't a priority because nobody had Wi-Fi, you know? So messenger was there. So when you could find Wi-Fi, you could message people. Um, But where I was, there was no Wi-Fi. So you just couldn't, you just didn't have the opportunity. Um, And so the, the difference between that deployment in 2019, when I deployed to Afghanistan was I talked to my wife every day, right? We would, Mm. we would video chat almost every day because we could, um, And it was just a vastly different experience, you know, like that, that the course of events could be followed, you know, and there could be 
you know, for her, there was more worry, right? I would imagine is that you're, you're, you're learning more about, you know, you're, you're, you're able to see my responses. Like, so if I had a hard day, you could see that. And whether or not I told you what was happening, because I couldn't always, um, you know, there's, there's a difference in how you approach the worry itself. Um, but when I came back, it was very similar. It was, you know what, It's, it's back to, back to us, back to, back to business as usual in, in the home. And there was, Mm. there was moments of conversations that were, you know, how can we bring you back home in some ways? Cause it was a little bit different, you know, especially 2012, those conversations didn't exist. And those, that was the, that was the deployment I needed it. Right. This, this last one, 2019, it's easy, right. It was like, there were, I think the most stressful thing that happened was the, my last mission where I thought I was going to have to shoot a guy, but it never happened. And so that was the only stressful thing that really happened to me. Um, mm. But at that point in my life, I was able to express myself and talk about these things and not hold it in and not remain silent because that was always yeah. the problem in 2012, you know? And so it's, it's a different, you know, it's a different environment now where I think leaders are more willing to expose that you're allowed to have problems, um, you know, and, and there's so much communication now or instances for communication opportunities for it, um, that it, it really makes it interesting to see like how your life has progressed through the military and, and, you know, obviously to where you are now, but, and then also compare it to my experience, which is far more modern, um, even through different militaries, I think it's still very, very mm-hmm. similar. Um, because I see, I've seen both kind of both ends of that of like, you know, I've been punched by a drill, a drill sergeant before too. And, you know, <laughs> that doesn't happen anymore. Um, and it, you can not, at least yeah, not in our military. Right. Doesn't uh, happen in ours either. <laughs> right. And so that's, you know, it's a different, it's a different world we kind of grew up in. And obviously yours was probably a lot worse than mine. I only got punched once in, you know, in basic training, whereas who knows how many times, you know, you went through that, but yeah, it's, and that, that, that kind of went on for, for quite a few years. I mean, you, yeah. you step out of line that there's two ways of dealing with it. Right. And, and, and it was always the, the sergeant's punishment or sergeant major's punishment. That was the <laughs> easiest one to take because it, it hurt for a second and, and it, it left money in your pocket. Yep. Yep. And generally a clean slate as well. Right. Your <laughs> reputation remained remained clean Absolutely. of sorts. <laughs> yeah. It's it's yeah, interesting. Just, just pick up on that um that you're on about the way things have changed. My last eight years, um, from two thousand nine till eighteen. Um, I was a welfare officer for London Central Garrison. So I was looking after pretty much, um, we had about 1,200 people on our, the, in, in the garrison that we looked after, a small welfare team. We had three companies of foot guards, uh, and there was about 100, I think it was about 108 um, rank of file for each company. So we had the um, Nijmegen Company, Grenadier Guards, Number seven company, Coldstream Guards, and F company, Scots Guards. Then we had the five foot guards bands, which is the, the, the those three, the Grenadiers, Coldstream, Scots, Irish, and Welsh Guards bands. 
that we looked after. We had the headquarters itself that we looked after. And we also picked up London district headquarters um, that we looked after their, their welfare. So we, we had regular meetings with, um, there was a garrison conference that involved the garrison commander, the adjutant, the doctors, the dentists, the welfare team, um, and then all the department heads. Um, so we'd have an open meeting to start with, uh, and then it broke down to individual units where they could come in uh, and talk about individual soldiers. Um, so we saw an awful lot of different um, different problems come through, from, from medical problems to, to mental health problems to to financial problems, to all sorts of problems that, that people have in, in modern day society. Yeah. And as a welfare, welfare team, we assisted with all of that. Um, and it's, 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 it's probably tougher than being a, a sort of a fighter soldier, really dealing with day in, day out people's problems. Yeah. Just about everybody that comes through your door has got, got a problem and, 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 you're the solution for it um and and it does take its toll after a few years of uh, yeah. i was ready to retire when i did <laughs> yeah it was yeah. a it was a tough job and I'd, I'd seen an awful lot of, i mean from, from combat days this this <laughs> this was i mean way over the top yeah, this 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 presented so many more problems than it did <laughs> with a Taliban coming out and you're an AK forty seven. That's for sure. Fighting's easy, right? Yeah, it's absolutely. The, it's, it's the it's aftermath and the, the logistics of everything else that's people's hard. Housing, people's problems with finance, people's relationship problems, people's mental health problems, people's health problems. Um, and, and yeah, just a whole, whole raft. Of, I mean, the young fellas that were coming into the companies, the foot guards companies, they'd come straight out of training and they were there doing their, their ceremonial training. So it, it was all about the whole existence for, for London Central Garrison is ceremonial. It's doing the guard, the Queen's Guards at Buckingham Palace, St. James's Palace, the Tower of London and Windsor Castle. So they mount guard and there's uh, a Queen's Guard is about 48 um, guides that, that are split up between the, the Tower, um, St. James's and Buckingham Palace. And then another, I think it's 12 guys that do the, the Windsor Guard. Um, and they call it a guard, but they're, they're there as, as a tourist attraction, basically. Yeah. Um, the police are actually doing the security on it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then you've got the, the, the five foot glass bands and they tend to be older people generally. Uh, and, and they, they come with a different set of issues. So yeah, musicians tend to be a bit more lovely and um, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, we had some really, really good times. I mean, I, I took so many liberties absolute liberties in, in i mean particularly on the queen's birthday parade i managed to blag the job of looking after the minor royals in the general's office awesome <laughs> so, so we've got the likes of um prince uh prince harry 
Megan uh, were there one year, um, and then you've got the 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 Gloucesters, the the Kents, the um, Princess Catherine, who's going to be our queen one day. Um, yeah. Camilla, um, and 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 uh, the Yorks, and yeah. So it was a it was a pretty special day, the Queen's birthday parade, and 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 also um, the festival of remembrance in the Albert Hall. I don't know if you ever seen that. We they got the Chelsea pensioners coming down the stage, and then yeah, it's all, all emotional. Um, so I managed to blag a duty on that, and, and that duty was fabulous because I just opened the curtain, closed the curtain, opened the curtain, closed the curtain. <laughs> yep. Um, and then I've done all, all, all the, the guards as the senior sergeant. So uh, on the Tower of London, I've done the senior sergeant role and uh, the ceremony of the keys, and I'm going for a drink in the Yeoman Warders Club after. Um, senior sergeant on the Buckingham Palace and senior sergeant on the uh, on St James's Palace and, uh, and Windsor Castle. So it's uh, it's a bit of a privilege to to get involved with that side of life as well and doing the fun bits and pieces. And then uh, adventurous training. I, I arranged an awful lot of adventurous training for, for the guys. Um, I'm a big sailor and um, I'm a big telemark skier. So I'd, I'd take guys to the telemark championships um, uh, in Austria for quite a few years and it went over to France. So I took teams down there to, to compete up against the, the Royal Marines and the, uh, some civvies and stuff like that. So it was uh, the British Telemark Championships, and and I was I came six in the army one year, so I was happy little lad. Um, Tim, we used to take them sailing. Uh, I used to love taking the guys sailing, and also I set up a rugby team for them. So the the London District Incremental Company's rugby team, the Old Dicks, we called them. <laughs> so we played rugby as well. Tim, I. I feel like if you don't have a book, you should, because the the life that you have lived has so many twists and turns and so many so many wise moments, so many things that I think people could could take from. I, I just feel like I feel like we could talk for hours and I don't obviously un, unfortunately we both don't have hours. Um, but I've got the live stream tonight. <laughs> right. Like you've, you've got stuff going on. I've got stuff going on. Um, it's just remarkable to kind of hear, uh, you know, I don't, I don't often go to, you know, an hour and a half with people, but it, it does happen every once in a while. It's just fascinating to listen to your story and your life and, and all of this stuff. And if you haven't thought about a book, May I just kind of put it on the table for you? You let it stew for a little bit. You think about it. <laughs> I've, got, I've got two books um, kind of in the pipeline. That, yeah. Um, one book is my life. Um, and and it's, yeah, I've, I've got it. What I've done is where I told my story, um, the 24 half an hour episodes, I've, taken all the words and I've put them into Adobe InDesign and I'm working my way through that. I'm correcting some of the English. I'm, I'm, I'm piecing together some more information in it uh, as, as I go through. 
it's a long old long old process to, to yeah. put that down then i've got this other book um that it's i think the title is probably going to be the life that never was now i would have had an older brother he was born on the 20th of december 1956 he died 16 hours later but all through my life i occasionally have a dream um about what his life would have been where i fitted into it yeah. how we how we got on and I've, I'm I'm trying to write that down because um, I can remember an awful lot of it, and, and these dreams I have is like us talking. It's that vivid. Yeah. Um, one of the last dreams I had was uh, uh, his his son's wedding, and um, I was I was chauffeuring for him. Um, I, I I took the the groom. And the the best man to the to the the church, and uh, and then I took his, his son and uh, the wife, the, the new uh, his new wife to the to the reception. And what woke me up was the the best man's speech, and some of the stuff that he was coming out for. I woke up laughing. Which was a shame because I wondered what, what happened after. <laughs> but but it, this, this, these dreams have, have been there pretty much all my life, uh, on and off, uh, about uh, us, uh, what he would have done with his life and, and how we, we were. So that's the other book that I've got going on. But with, with all these podcastings that I'm doing, it's... Uh, the editing and all the rest of it, just taking time. So I'll get there with it eventually. And uh, I hope you do. Yeah. I really hope you do because both of those books sound awesome. They sound wonderful. They, they've got a lot of interaction to them. Yeah. Well, Tim, again, I feel like we could talk for hours about this stuff, but, you know, alas, we've yeah. both got lives. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you the final question. You can take that where you want to um and then we're gonna close this episode out but if there was one message you could leave the world tim what would that be live every day as though it's your last because one day it will be that's it there you go that's what i'll try and do i believe it duck dive dodge weave uh, and make it happen uh, don't sit back and, and and do nothing you've got to take life by the horns and 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 ride it and you make your own life don't wait for somebody else to to dictate to your life if you want something get out there and get it and live every day as though it's your last because one day it will be and you don't want to turn up in the pearly gates and have regrets oh, i wish i'd done that i wish i'd done that and I didn't. It's only got yourself to blame if you didn't. Thank you, Tim, for all of this. I, I always find it so humbling to, to listen to incredible stories like yourself. 
Um, and I know you have a podcast that does the same, but I, I hope you know that you have an incredible story and that, you know, today you've made an impact on me and I'm going to take what I've learned from you and, and hopefully share it with people, you know, hopefully no, give thank, people. Thank you so much, Dylan, for having me on. Absolutely. I've, I've, I've enjoyed recollecting. <laughs> I love it. I love it. We'll, we'll have to do it again soon when you uh, maybe oh, get a little bit closer to that finishing that book. I'd love to hear, honestly, I'd really love to hear mm. the story of the second book. You know, I'd, I'd love to hear about those dreams and, and about yeah. this life. You know, I think, I think that's a it's slowly it, coming together. It's, it's a beautiful kind of memorial to him. Yeah. The last I, it I, never was. I think that's, I think been. that's wonderful. So anyway, you're welcome to come on my live stream anytime. I appreciate thirsty, it. Thirsty Thursday live stream <laughs> from from seven till nine every Thursday. Um, that's uh, British summer time or or Greenwich Mean time during the winter, and uh, we talk about all sorts. We have specials, we have um, open forums, and uh, I, I try and get special guests in, and we just like to have a bit of a giggle and a, a bit of a laugh and and have some fun. So life's too short to be serious. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Tim, I will, I will certainly try to try to join you at some point, but until then, I'll ping you the link. Yeah, absolutely. And until then you take care of yourself and and for the people out there still listening, you take care of yourself. Um, I hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll catch you next time on the Dylan experience. Yeah. Stay low, move fast and watch where you put your feet.